The Financial Planning South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Hi, I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is Financial Planners South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Comspace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web-based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. Comspace provides mind-blowing, out-the-box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super-flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Financial Planners South Africa. Today, I have with me in the studio, Mr. David LePage. David is the co-founder of Fossil Free South Africa and had a wonderful presentation at the recent Financial Planning Institute convention. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Louis, thanks very much for inviting me to, to chat with you and I'm looking forward to sharing some information and ideas with you and your listeners. And I think it would absolutely just be that, an exploration of what Fossil Free South Africa is doing, how we can start talking to our clients about what their money should actually be doing, right? Because we always focus on what are the returns, how much is your money growing? And after your presentation, I had to sit back and actually say, well, it's one element of a money to be doing well in terms of growth, but I think maybe our clients' money and our own money should maybe be used for some good as well. Give us the the kind of backstory of where Fossil Free South Africa was started. Uh, as one of the co-founders, um, I'm wondering, and, and this is probably close to a decade ago when uh, when this happened. So please tell us that story. I'd love to hear that. Sure. Well, my, my background is that I've been a, a science and human rights journalist for probably 20 or more years now. And I became aware of the issue of climate change around about 2005 um, and spent some years kind of exploring, working as a journalist, um, working with some organizations. Um, and around about 2013, uh, a friend of mine who was a sustainability consultant um, did a, a screening of a documentary called Do the Math, which introduced this extraordinary new social movement that was then just starting in, in North America, a movement for people to stop investing in fossil fuels. And at that stage, it was being led by campuses. So small universities in, in America and Canada were starting to divest their endowments from fossil fuels as a recognition of the fact that government action on climate change is just way too slow. I was inspired by this movement. I, it seemed to me a potentially very powerful strategy for taking on taking on the fossil fuel industry. And I thought, well, I am a UCT 
graduate. Um, I live here in Cape Town. Let's see if we can get the University of Cape Town to divest from fossil fuels. And we sent a letter, myself and nine other alumni and staff and students of UCT to the, to the university asking them to divest. You can't just send one letter when you're dealing with any kind of bureaucracy, you have to follow up. And so we followed up and we started hosting events with students and um, one thing led to another. And the next year we created the small nonprofit Fossil Free South Africa, which has expanded its mission beyond um, UCT. And we've been working for, for a number of years now trying to get the message across that we cannot afford to continue investing in fossil fuels if we want a future that is sustainable and humane for all of us. So this very much was a frustration with the lack of change from a government perspective, if I, if I hear you correct. Why focus on the fossil fuels? Yeah, is that the element that we should be focusing on when we talk about climate change? Yes, very much so. I mean, burning fossil fuels, coal, gas and oil is overwhelmingly still the, the biggest source of, of the greenhouse gases that are responsible for, for climate change and what is rapidly becoming, unfortunately, a climate crisis, um, a climate emergency, climate breakdown, really, the, the destabilization of the, of the atmosphere that we've had for so long. Human beings over the past 200 years, we've, we've increased the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by 50% and the amount of methane in the atmosphere by 150%. And those, methane is a greenhouse gas that's 50 to 120 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So we're wreaking extraordinarily profound changes on the biosphere. Carbon dioxide is literally making the oceans more acid, 30% more acid. And alongside climate change, we have an accelerating biodiversity um, crisis where we're literally taking the amazing living systems that have supported our lives for so long, um, for, for thousands and thousands of years. We're taking living systems and transform, transforming them into stuff. Um, and it's an approach that, that no longer works. Um, there's a, a metaphor that we can draw with, with when something becomes toxic. All substances, when, when you're talking about the concept of toxicity, a lot of substances can be completely benign in small quantities, but at a certain concentration, suddenly you run into big problems. Even water, you know, you can poison yourself drinking too much water. And carbon dioxide and methane, which at natural levels in the atmosphere are completely unproblematic, as human beings have accelerated and increased those, those quantities. Around about 1970, I would say, we, we passed this, these fundamental tipping points where we passed the point of what was sustainable for, for, for the, the good of the planet, at least the good of the planet as a, as a safe sort of life support system for human beings. I mean, that's quite scary that we already passed that. I, I was surprised to hear that you know, it was already 1970, yet the speed at which we're taking action is so slow. Obviously, hence you starting Fossil Free South Africa. I know in your presentation, you also shared some good news that UCT has come to the party. Can, can you share with us why it took them so long to actually take action and what that now means that they are physically divesting from uh, fossil fuels or the investment in fossil fuels? Yes, certainly. I, mean, I actually had coffee earlier this week with 
UCT's finance, former finance director. So he was kind of one of the people I was talking to for on, on an ongoing basis over the, over the years that we were busy with this campaign. Um, and the thing is, South African universities are institutions under a lot of pressure. South African students face a lot of very basic issues such as accommodation and food in some instances and, and being able to pay their university fees. And so in, in North America, students have been incredibly active on, on climate issues. Here in South Africa, not so much. Um, and there have been times where, for example, we had the fees must fall movement in, in 2016, 2017, um, all those kinds of issues slowed down, I think, QCT's progress on, on divestment, but they got there in the end. Um, around about 2017, they created a responsible investment committee in response to our, our activism. Um, and last year, eventually, uh, earlier this year in March, finally the university took the decision to divest from fossil fuels. And they've really made substantial progress with, with implementation, setting off some big, very fossil fuel intensive offshore assets. So what I'm hearing is that it, it just there's, there were more pressing items to deal with. And we're not picking on the University of Cape Town, but it's to highlight this lack of urgency and the speed at which we're making changes. I know you've been doing some work with asset managers in South Africa. Tell us how that came about and, and how you identified the asset managers that you're targeting to have conversations around the investment of fossil fuels? Well, I just want to go back quickly to the, the point about we're not picking on the University of Cape Town because essentially what you're pulling out here is this point that when it comes to climate change, society as a whole is dealing with a problem which we haven't got the institutional framework to deal with. And so it's mm -hmm. always kind of pushed to one side because we've kind of created intellectual and social and political systems that are geared to other kinds of issues, and now we have this extraordinary issue that is outside our normal framework for decision-making, and it just gets neglected again and again and again because of that. So that's really one of the things that we, that we need to change. And, this, and the same thing applies very much to, and this leads on to your question about asset managers. The decision-making framework that asset managers use is essentially not very different to the one that they've had in the 1960s. Um, and it's a, a framework that is based on the idea that the externalized costs of, of investments, that is the environmental impacts of how a particular business operates and the social impacts of how a particular business operates. And, uh, historically, those externalized costs were never so critical and so substantial that they could undermine the business and the, and the world as a whole. But that's the transition that we went through in 1970 that I was referring to, which was that that is the time in which those externalized costs started to mount up to such a point that if you take the world we live in as being the, the economy in the biggest sense, we started to make our, our global economy, not, not, not just the, the global economy considering financial and non-financial factors together started to shrink because we started to destroy the, the natural capital in which we're all dependent around that time in, in rather critical ways. So with asset managers, asset managers very often, pension funds are a bit better because they often have a long time frame for decision-making and they look 30, 25, 30 years ahead. But asset managers very often don't have a time horizon beyond three to five years, if that. Um, and it's a real problem when you're talking about an issue like, like climate change, where 
now the decision-making framework is based in some instances around this concept of, of net zero. So um, we, we talk about being able to bring global carbon emissions down to net zero by 2050. That is actually way, way, way too slow still, but that's the kind of framework that most asset managers still don't know how to deal with. And I think partly it's just a, it's a, just a human thing. You have people sitting in jobs for an average three to five years before they move on. So where's the accountability? This, this is quite frustrating that we don't have the framework, that it's not from a governmental perspective or from an institutional perspective, and that we're almost relying on retail investors, the, the man in the street to say, let's change this from the bottom up. Is that is that what we're seeing happen? Is it people just rallying, getting together and saying, we need to change, we need to change this quickly? Well, I don't think we're, unfortunately, we're not seeing it sufficiently yet. And I think in amongst the, the investing public, there's a, a growing awareness that these are critical issues and, and a lot of frustration from people that asset managers are not taking the issues sufficiently seriously. And we now have a list of over 100 Alan Gray clients who want a fossil fuel free fund from Alan Gray. I'm not picking on Alan Gray in particular. That just happens to be the, the fund for which um, people who, who are supporting us have been most active. But we also want to approach other asset managers as part of what we call our Invest Fossil Free campaign to, to ask all of them to start fossil fuel free um, investment funds. Um, but we're starting with Alan Gray because that's where most of the client interest seems to be. To be. And we're actually going to be sending that letter off um, tomorrow to, to ask them for that fund. So that should be a very interesting conversation and engagement, um, not least because in our experience of, of the different asset managers, and we held workshops with asset managers in 2017 and have had ongoing engagement since then. But in our experience of the different asset managers, Alan Gray has been, shall we say, more conservative than others. <laughs> Are the asset managers willing to engage on this topic and what's, what's the feedback that, that you're getting? Or do they just dismiss you and say, no, we're not interested, we don't think this is an issue? Or is there an element where they will consider creating additional fund classes? Because obviously part of this is also a business decision, uh, but what does the engagement look like? Uh, those ones you mentioned in 2017, how well did they receive this message and is it something they're thinking about? Well, to take Alan Gray, for example, I mean, we've had feedback from people at Alan Gray saying very specifically to us that our clients don't want, are not interested in these issues and our clients don't want fossil-free funds. Um, that was a few years ago. That I think we can now prove to them that that's not the case. Um, yeah, there are, we've, we've found on the whole that Old Mutual and 91 have been the people that have been more responsive to this kind of conversation. We've had a couple of asset managers that have been incredibly supportive, and we've had some sponsorship, for example, from Future Growth for some of our events. So it varies substantially from, from asset manager to asset manager. Um, but I think it's fair to say that I don't think any asset manager in South Africa is doing enough. And that very often they will argue, well, that's because they're just dealing with client mandates. But I think given the, the understanding that I see of the climate issue um, amongst the people who run asset management companies. And I've been amazed and impressed by, by, the, by the knowledge that, that very often top analysts at, at, asset managers like Alan Gray do have. I, I fail to understand why they don't translate that into information that is going to their clients 
about this big systemic risk that's unlike anything that has come our way before, um, that has very profound implications for the future of, of investments um, and the future environment in which people hope to enjoy their investments. Um, so I think there should be a far more active conversation between asset managers and clients on these issues um, than there has been. David, do you see any global businesses dealing with this in a manner that aligns to what you're saying, aligns to what you would like to see or the way you would like fund managers to handle these assets? Well, yes, definitely. I mean, the, South Africa, unfortunately, has a quite a, a poor track record when it comes to ethical investments. Um, other countries, in, ethical investment has been uh, an industry for, for decades. Um, so in Europe, in the United States, in Australia, in the UK, for, for a long time, you've been able to, if you were if you were so inclined to go out there and look for ethical investments, not just on climate, but on social issues, on human rights, on labor rights, um, on, a, on a host of different issues. And South Africa, although we have a very well-developed financial sector in, in many respects, we've been very, very poor in, in, in doing the same, the same kind of thing. What we are starting to see is growing interest in, in this new model for responsible investment called ESG, um, and we can unpack that a bit. Uh, but I think ESG has been adopted very reluctantly here in South Africa. And, and there are good reasons to be skeptical about ESG methodologies as I, as I unpacked at the FBI um, conference. But the fact that ESG exists shows that there's a growing recognition that these issues are important that must be addressed um, in some way. And whether ESG is the, or the, some of the ESG methodologies that have been developed are, are, is the best way to do that is, is up for debate. But um, it's definitely a, a response that shows the importance of the issue being understood more widely. I mean, oftentimes people would talk about, oh, I don't want to give up returns and, and I would like to invest rather than a fund that has better performance than one that has a, a ethical overlay or ESG factor. Is it a given that we need to give up returns yet still have, be investing in ethical funds? I think overwhelmingly the, the, the evidence is, and this is, comes from surveys that have been done by financial services companies, ESG funds generally perform as well as mainstream funds and, and very often outperform mainstream funds. So the first answer, but the, the question is whether ESG funds as we know them actually go far enough in terms of actually remedying the systemic issues that we're seeing. And the answer to that is no, they don't. But what I think we have to start understanding is that it's possibly a concept of personal returns and social returns on investments. And again, this is the, that transition or that inflection point that we passed through in 1970. Up until then, I would say you could ignore the issue of whether or not there were sufficient social returns on your investment because you knew that the, the surrounding sort of human and certain biological ecology which, on which we all depend would be secure. But that's no longer the case. And so you do want the social return on your investment now, even if you're not getting a personal return, because you actually want to have a reasonably stable society and, and planet to live on. Um, and so just going for the social re personal returns when, when the, the social return is being undermined no longer makes any sense. David, if, is, is if that you a very were abstract to... argument or am I making... Like, no, making, no, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to play with this idea of the social return. And yeah. you know, if you were to engage with a financial planner and they talk through 
you know, the upside is either your personal return, i.e. return growth of your money, or social returns. What would a conversation like that look like? You know, for someone that's very passionate about this, what would you expect your financial advisor to, how would they prompt this conversation and how would they help weigh up the importance of the two for you as an individual or maybe you as a family? Well, I think, I think first of all, people needn't be too alarmed by this idea that the point is you don't have to give up all hope of having decent returns on your investments. I mean, I would say you, know, you, you should probably understand that where there has in the past been extraordinary outperformance, that that outperformance has based, been based on rather dodgy factors. So, for example, if we look at the, the companies that have return, performed the best on, on the FTSE over the last 30 years, those are British Aerospace and um, British American Tobacco. And those are obviously companies that externalize a lot of their costs by imposing horrendous costs on society. So we don't want that kind of outperformance. You, you know, you can, but you can still get it. You can still invest responsibly and, and get decent returns, I think. I like this idea of framing it around the external costs. Yet I wonder how many clients would resonate with, with that concept just to say, okay, well, what are the parameters? What would, what are the rules of investing when we look at your portfolio in terms well, of saying what external, can we invest? Think about external costs this way. Imagine you live next door to, to somebody who's a business. Mm. Uh, maybe, it, maybe it's a, um, I don't know, a kennel. And maybe the, one of the ways they cut costs is by throwing all the poo that accumulates over your wall. <laughs> you know, that's kind of a metaphor for how some businesses behave in this world, in the world, unfortunately. And, and essentially, when when big fossil fuel companies um, emit carbon in, in huge quantities, what, essentially what they're doing is throwing their poo, their metaphorical poo, at the rest of us. Um, and so, so what we're essentially saying is, well, we can't afford to have businesses that operate that in, that way anymore. Everybody has to take care of, of their own their own external costs and, and stop imposing them on the rest of us. So, David, who's policing these external costs from these businesses? Well, again, this really the, 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 coming back to the, the metaphor of having a kennel next door where something was thrown over your wall. In, in real life, you'd go and you'd call the, the council and the council would come around and give them a clap and, and sort it out. Um, and that's really what we should be expecting from our governments. Um, but governments are failing to act sufficiently on this, on this issue of climate change at the level that they should be. But really, what, one of the points I made at the FBI conference was that the the primary thing that we need to be doing in response to the climate crisis is to become very active and involved citizens. And yes, our investments can play a role in this, and we should be looking to our investments to play a role in this. But investment alone is not going to fix it. We've gone through, we've lived through an era, unfortunately, from, from about 1980, um, when, when Ronald Reagan became president in the United States and Margaret Thatcher became the prime minister in the UK where government regulation was, came to be regarded as a very bad thing. And of course, Sometimes government regulation can be perverse and inefficient, and, and there are reasons to be critical of it and, and look at how it's designed at times. But overwhelmingly, as human beings, we've discovered over the centuries that there are some think, areas of human life that are best taken care of by, by authorities like, like governments. Um, we did that with, with the hole in the ozone level, uh, ozone layer that was kind of fixed by collective government or began to be fixed by collective government action from the 1990s. Um, at a social level, there are all sorts of costs that, and, and functions that we need as, as citizens, policing, sewage, 
roads and so forth. These are things that are best organized by governments. And managing pollution is something that should be strongly managed by governments and our, our governments are failing to do that. And one of the reasons for that is the incredible power and influence of the fossil fuel industry, which in many instances has corrupted governments, not just in a trivial financial sense, but they, they, people are very often daunted and impressed by power and fossil fuel companies are wealthy, powerful institutions that are very impressive for your average politician. And even if they're not actively corrupt in their dealings with those, those institutions, those institutions have extraordinary power um, and it's very easy to, to be swayed by them when, you, when it comes to making the rules about um, how pollution and externalities are managed. What, ha- what happens if we don't get this right? I mean, how, how, how bad can things get and you know, what are the timelines we're talking about here? Well, I, th- I think we've gone through a trans- another transition in the last couple of years where the, the climate crisis has moved from being something that was kind of a, a future crisis to, to being a present crisis. So, as I, as I, again, as I mentioned during the FBI conference, in Pakistan earlier this year, we saw most horrendous flooding affecting huge portions of, of that country. We saw rainfall levels of not just a few percent higher than the average, but several hundred percent higher than the, the usual seasonal averages. Um, we've seen an absolutely extraordinary amount of devastation from climate change being visited on a country which produces very little average per capita carbon emissions itself. And so the ordinary Pakistani person is not nearly as responsible for the climate crisis as your average American or your average middle-class person living in Johannesburg or Cape Town, for that matter. We're seeing a a rise in in the number of, sharp rise in the number of natural disasters that are happening around the world. We're seeing very real and immediate and worrying impacts. And one of the, the, the crises that is emerging now is that what few people don't under, understand about climate change is that it is potentially a self-reinforcing process. So as human beings emit carbon dioxide that warms the atmosphere, it destabilizes certain natural systems that have been acting as cooling agents for, for millennia. And those, those systems, now that they're destabilized, start to add to the, to the, to the climate crisis. So as, for example, ice melts in the, in the Arctic, Heat is no longer reflected back into space, but it starts to be absorbed into the ocean. As we see heating in, in, in the Arctic regions, we see forests that previously would never be burned, burning and adding yet more carbon dioxide to, to, to the atmosphere. We see permafrost melting and methane being released from, from the permafrost. We see ocean currents being destabilized by glacial melt, ocean currents that have been channeling heat to certain regions that have relied on them for the stabilization of their weather for, for centuries, where agriculture has become adapted to having heat brought by ocean currents. Those ocean currents are being destabilized by ice melt from, from the Arctic and from Greenland. So it's a very real and present crisis. And if we don't, arguably, if we don't manage to cut global greenhouse gas emissions by 50% or more in the next few years, we're going to, to lose the chance of potentially containing this crisis and we will get into a situation of runaway global warming and it will be in my view i don't i mean i don't think we, there, there's sometimes talk about human extinction i don't think human beings are going to be extinct by any means i think we're a very highly adaptable species but 
there is scope for enormous chaos and misery and unpleasantness ahead of us if we don't get a grip on this crisis. David, on a personal level, how do you deal with the heaviness of this topic and the frustration around the speed? Just day in and day out having to to fight for this. Um, yeah, I would, I'm curious to just hear how, how you've managed to process that and and work with that. Yeah, I mean, thanks for asking about that. I, at times, it's very hard. You know, I've got three small boys myself. I I was a climate activist before. I had three small boys. I do quite often wonder about the stability of the world that I've brought them into and what kind of lives they're going to have. I mean, I should say that I think there is an upside to all this as well, which is that if we do get this transition that we need to go through right, that we can create a, an amazing future for humanity. But the next few years are very important in that. And yeah, at times it weighs extremely heavily on me and I, I do get depressed and and feel scared. And yeah, I, I think I'm fortunate in that to some degree I've found a, an area, somewhat to my own surprise, where I feel like I'm effective and I'm able to make a difference. But am I making enough of a difference? The evidence is no. <laughs> Along with, for me and, and many other climate activists, we know that we're not making enough of a difference because we're not seeing the change that is needed yet. But we are also seeing very profound levels of social awareness around this. And we get to go through these periodic waves of growing social awareness around the world. And um, we're at a very different place to where we were socially on this, on this issue 10 to 15 years ago. But we really need massive transformative change in the present decade. I think what we're seeing in the financial planning world is that we act as this filter between news and the real world and what's happening and kind of bringing that to our client base and saying, actually, this is how you make sense of this information that you're hearing, very similar to what you're doing, right? This is how you make sense of climate change information. And this is actually the action that you can take. And this feels like another element, maybe a, a critical element in terms of conversations we need to be having with our clients to say, this is one of the ways that you can live out not only your views, but how important it is that we reduce social cost and that we Im improve this. You know, just like you might change your diet or you might switch off lights that are burning unnecessarily or you might recycle. Uh, I feel like this should probably get to a point where it is frowned upon if we don't do it, right? If we invest in, in fossil fuels, or, or is that is that too naive to think that it can happen? Well, I think we, we do all need to be engaged in those personal areas of change, but we actually, to properly address this problem, we have to get involved in, in social levels of change. And, and that's difficult in a country like South Africa, where we have a pretty flawed democracy, where we, we don't have the kind of access to members of parliament that we should have. Um, but many of us are in positions of where we can start to make a difference. I mean, at a, at, a, at a personal level, you could say, well, is the company that I'm part of aware of these issues? Do we have a climate change committee? Have we talked to our pension fund administrators about this issue? Have they made any changes? What are we doing in terms of our relationships with municipal officials? Um, so there are, it is a, a frustrating country in which to try and tackle climate change through democratic processes. But we should be, we should be making the effort alongside those, those efforts that we make at, at a personal level. The fossil fuel industry has been very successful in creating the idea 
that they are just responding to the demand that we create as consumers. And they completely hide and conceal the fact that, for example, behind the scenes, they are constantly lobbying to get massive subsidies for themselves that put themselves in a much stronger position than they should be in comp in, when comp competing against renewable energy, for example. So what the, what the fossil fuel industry has done effectively is to, is to delay change um, and delay action on climate at a multitude of levels. They're still very, very busy with it. At the recent climate conference in Egypt, there were hundreds and hundreds of fossil fuel lobbyists working there and far better resourced and with far greater access in many instances to, to power that, and, and, and the climate activists have. So they've slowed down this transition. They've given us the idea that it's all our fault and, and they're very happy to continue to have plans for content, to continuing to use their resources that are completely out of sync with what scientists have identified to be safe. So David, apart from people lobbying and, and saying, hey, we need, to, we need to disinvest from these fossil fuels. If you could send a message to financial planners listening to this show, how would you want financial planners to change or the end clients to change um, the way we, we view our investments or just the world, finance world in general? Well, I think the question to ask yourself is, is, well, let's look at our portfolio and say, what are these companies doing? And if they continue to do it for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, what kind of world is that going to lead us into? I, mean, I recall a few years ago being struck by an asset manager saying you know, capital allocation is essentially how we design the future. So are we allocating capital to the future that we want? Or, or are we allocating capital to a future that we don't want? And if we want to allocate capital to the future that we want, then we need to be putting money not into fossil fuels, but into renewable energy, into regenerative agriculture, into a circular economy. And we need to be paying people decent wages and, and, and salaries and at the same time that we do that, because it's only when people are able to earn a decent living that they can become empowered citizens who can tackle this issue at a democratic level that we, in the way that we need to. I think that makes so much sense. And when, when we're looking at kind of the passive investment structure, you know, it follows the weighting of your shares follow the growth of that company. So the, the larger it grows, the higher the allocation. And, and it sounds like this role around active company selection is a place where active managers can also differentiate themselves and say, hey, well, this is, this is the value that we're offering. Are there any passive solutions that you know of that have done this fairly well? Maybe not in the local market, but even globally. Well, actually, there's one example that we, we know of in, in, the, in the local market, um, uh, the Efficient Group, and particularly a division called Naviga in the, in the past, in, in, I think it was March last year, launched a passive fund called the Select BCI ESG Equity Fund. Um, it's based on an S&P ESG fund, uh, ESG index, and it starts by excluding all thermal coal, tobacco, um, what they call controversial weapons, and a couple of other nasties. Um, we were involved in a long discussion with the, the originators of this fund, together with the shareholder activists and Just Share, and they created this fund, put an additional hard screen on Sassel, which for some reason was not excluded by the methodology of the S&P index, you know, pointing us back to, to some of the inherent problems with some of these ESG methodologies, 
Um, but we like this fund because of the the the, the hard exclusions. Um, we like the fact that it's it marks it gives higher weighting to funds that score well on the global compacts, for example. Um, so that's one solution, but and it's performed fairly well. I mean, it's I think it's in, you know, in that it's not um, doing extraordinary performance, but it's it's definitely doing acceptable performance. And we need to see more funds like that here in South Africa. And then when you go offshore, there, there are a lot more options for funds that are either completely decarbonized or substantially decarbonized, which is what the way we need to be going on that, that one crucial issue of, of climate. Yeah, I think for me, if, we, if we're not prompting our clients to have these discussions, they will be prompting us very soon. And to say, let's let's get the data and let's make sure that we are actively making a difference with, with our money as well and aligning that to the rest of our lives. Because we spend a lot of time with our clients unpacking what's important to them. And for anyone that has children, you know, like you mentioned, David and, and myself, I've got uh, my daughter's turning two. And when I was listening, your presentation was like, wow, the, the world that she will grow up in will look very different from the world that we grew up in. And that's scary. And it doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be, like you're saying, there are options for us. So for people listening to this, what would be the next steps? What would you, what action would you want them to take today when they're listening to this? I would say you, you need to call your financial advisor and say, what are, what are you doing to get me um, the options for investment that I that will give me the, the future that I want and not the future I don't want. <laughs> and that needs to start an, a conversation between financial planners and the asset managers. Often the asset managers also say, well, we don't see any demand from financial planners for these kinds of products. So it's all, everybody's dancing around saying, well, nobody else is interested. <laughs> At some point, we've all got to say, this, is, this has got to stop. We're all very interested now. I've heard some arguments where asset managers would say, well, we would want the, want the companies like Sasol, for example, to, uh, to, to not be cut off from capital. And so to allow them to transition their business into something that is less fossil fuel intensive. What, what's your take on that? Why, why do we think that's not a suitable strategy? Well, I mean, Sasol obviously is a very big and important company in, in the South African economy. Um, to some extent, we all depend on their products. The problem is that fossil fuel companies are notoriously impervious to, to change. Now, Sassel in the last year has announced some big plans. They've set net zero targets for 2050 and so forth. And so if you took a, a superficial look at them, you'd say, oh, well, Sassel has decided to change. But unfortunately, Sassel is also a company that has set itself targets for reducing emissions, not just of carbon dioxide, but, but of other pollutants over the, over the years. And again and again and again, they have missed their own targets. The most of the plans that they have for transitioning away from carbon have been deferred far too late. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, we need significant change in this decade. And so when it comes to dealing with SASOL, I mean, I know there are some asset managers already that will not touch them. But if you do have SASL in your portfolio, I think at the very least, as an asset manager, you should be saying, well, we are going to partially divest and we are going to make it very clear to SASL that we are partially divesting and we want them to show a much accelerated timetable for transformation before they can see us actually going, going back into them. And they need to demonstrate that they can meet their targets. 
So those targets need to be more ambitious and they need to show that they can meet them. And then we could start to talk about potentially reinvesting in SAFL. It's like an abusive relationship where they say, oh, no, I'm going to change. Just (laughs) give me this chance. Yeah. And and I mean I, I I find that the 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 arguments for active engagement with with companies like SaaS are somewhat bizarre. Firstly, it's taken asset managers a very long time to start having these conversations. The first UN convention on climate change was 30 years ago, um, but really asset managers have only in the last couple of years started to take these issues seriously to the degree they have. Secondly, there's no evidence that they've actually secured any significant change from companies like SaaS. And that's not a poor reflection on them. It's a reflection on the nature of the, the, of the industry, which is that these companies are, in, in international experience, very reluctant to change. And, and active shareholders overseas are very often just thrown up their hands after trying to get change out, change out of companies like ExxonMobil and says, this is a losing game. We're just going to divest because there's no ways we can persuade these companies to change. Maybe Sassel will prove prove us all wrong, but until they have, we need to put a lot more pressure on them. David, I get the sense that investors think that they have less control than what they actually have and that they can have an active input in where they would like their money to be invested. And like you said, the future that you want to see, and I would add not only for ourselves, but for our children. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And I would urge anyone to go to fossilfreesa.org.za and follow David and the work that they're doing, specifically around engagement with asset managers. I think these are important conversations we need to be having, um, and it's happening too slowly. Any last words that you'd like to add, David, from your side? Yes, thanks, Louis. It's been great chatting to you. Uh, And again, yeah, please, um, listeners, if you could go to our website, Click on our under our campaigns on our Invest Fossil Free campaign to sign up um, to ask your particular asset manager for a fossil fuel free investment fund. Um, we're not expecting asset managers to divest their entire portfolios overnight, but we think that people who want this kind of fund should have the option for them. Uh, and we need to put pressure on them collectively to deliver. Thanks again. Wonderful. Thank you, David.